this morning's scripture is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Word of the Lord. Dude, your voice is epic. <laughs> Jealous. All right. Um, hey, my name is Tommy, and um, I moved this week. And there's two things I can't find, silverware and dress clothes. So um, we'll get there. So uh, we're doing the book of Revelation. Um, and so just heads up, um, after this week, I don't normally tell people when I, when I go out of town because I'm afraid you won't show up, but that's not you anymore. Um, so uh, this week, I'm leaving on Thursday. Um, I'll be out of town for two weeks, going to Germany, play some music, have some fun, and then come back. Um, Jason Sowell of the Ministry Current is going to be speaking for the next two weeks. He's incredible. And we've got guest worship leaders and stuff, so it's going to be just fine. I'm, t- I'm talking to myself. It's going to be just fine. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so we're doing uh, the book of Revelation this morning. Once in a while, I just, I just, I look at the passage that, that where we're at, and I'm like, I want to do something else this week, so we're doing this. And so, um, I always have to sort of give a disclaimer when you do the book of Revelation, because if you ask four people about their interpretation of the book of Revelation, you're going to get like six answers, different answers, all different about how to read this book. Um... And so I tend to take a sort of historical, political commentary view of the whole thing. And so uh, here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going I'm to jump into this passage, and I'm going to offer up sort of a maybe possibly a different interpretation of some of this than you've heard before. Um, um, because I like to incorporate a lot of the, the recent sort of scholarship done in the last 50 years or so. Archaeology has, has shown us some amazing things. And, uh, and opened our eyes to some things that we've forgotten as, as Christians over the last couple thousand years. Um, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to read this. And, and so here's how it's going to work. We're going um, to sort of take this all apart into a bunch of little pieces and, uh, and look at each piece individually. And, then, and so it's going to be a whole lot of information up front. So if you're writing, like sharpen your pencils, whatever, um, your feather, whatever you're using, um, hipsters, feathers, and quill, you know. Um, and so... We're going to uh, jump all over the place, take a lot of notes, and, and then we're going to back up and we're going to look at some meaning of the whole thing. And then we're going to look at how that church compares to us today. So um, it should be good. I'm going to pray. Again, welcome to Watermark, um, an official Pokestop. <laughs> but of course, you already knew that, didn't you? No. I know. Okay. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are, for... Um, for, for who you are making us into. Um, be with us this morning. Guide us. Uh, bless our time together. Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us understanding and wisdom. Um, give us a small glimpse into the world of these ancient people. Thank you for preserving these ancient writings. Give us understanding to them. And uh, speak through me. Allow me to remember the things that I've, that I've studied this week. And uh, to communicate it clearly. Thank you for the hope that we have that we find in you. Amen. So, uh, the book of Revelation is 
I would argue, a political commentary uh, about uh, Rome in the first century. And it is written in a type of language called um, uh, apocalyptic language. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically veiled language. It means veiled language. Um, it is a way of writing that the Jewish people would use that was very had heavy on symbolism, very hard to understand, beasts and dragons and devils, all kinds of stuff, and they're all sort of intertwined in, these, in this incredible work of, of literature that um, should Roman soldiers or whatever get a hold of this, they wouldn't understand it, but Roman people would hear it. And so they would read it and they would understand, sort of, they'd see right through the veiled language. And so it's written by a guy, so hold on, we're going to start right here. Um, in verse 8. So let's break it down one piece at a time. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. So um, it is written from, by a guy named John. Um, and uh, there's debate about which John it was, about whether um, it was just a contemporary of the apostles or whether it was one of the apostles. Um, and so uh, John is in exile on this island called Patmos. Um, Patmos, sort of a big rocky island, and, and he's in exile because there's this emperor named Domitian who is trying to stop, in general, he's trying to stop the spread of Christianity because of the threat that it poses to the empire, people no longer worshiping the emperors. And so he's taken some of the pastors and he's exiled them, uh, several of them on the island of Patmos. Um, and so John, is ha- he's not allowed to leave this island, um, and so uh, he, is, he is here, and while he is here, he has this sort of vision that he claims um, where he sees all of, these, all of these symbolic things, and he writes them all down, and he writes this letter um, to seven churches in, uh, in what's called Asia Minor. Um, Asia Minor. So here we go. Here's a map. Uh, we have, it says Asia Minor right here. Um, so let me light up Patmos for you. Patmos is right here. It's this little grayish blue circle. And uh, this part of the letter is written to Smyrna, right, right above it, just up north of there. Um, and this letter would, would first go to Ephesus, and then Smyrna would go up to uh, Pergamos, and then down through Theatira, Sar- uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Eropolis, Laodicea. And it would work its way around in sort of a circle that's like an ancient Roman mail route. And it would take this route. And there's a, there's, it's, the letter starts off with these seven letters to these seven churches. And that's important to remember is that these are churches. We are a church. These are churches. And so a lot of the things you, you see in these letters, you can look at and, and compare it to sort of um, is what they're doing, is what they're going through. Some of the rebuke that he has for these churches is that things that, that we are struggling with, that we're going through. Um, and so that's what we're going to look at now. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about Asia Minor. Um, these seven churches right here are unique in the Roman Empire. Um, the general consensus in, in the empire is all of the cities that are now part of the Roman Empire at this period of time were put there by force. Rome charges in with their swords and their shields and their spears and their arrows and their armies and they say, hey, uh, we would love for you to be a part of Rome. What do you say? And they say, what happens if I don't? Well, we're going to run you through. Okay, I'll join Rome. Okay, so they join Rome. So there's, there's tons and tons and tons of cities that are not fans of Rome, um, that are simply part of Rome because they had to become part of Rome, sort of they're colonizing the world at the time. Now, um, these seven cities in particular, archaeologists tell us, um, were actually big fans of Rome. John, from another part of Rome, exiled from his church, um, and living on the island of Patmos, while he's sitting there, knowing Christians all over the, all over the empire are being persecuted, knows that there's this 
there's these seven churches where there's not persecution. And in fact, um, they're big fans of Rome. In fact, um, archaeologists also tell us that there was um, sort of competition between these seven churches, these seven cities, to see who could be the best in Rome, who could excel um, intellectually, politically, economically. You have the city of Ephesus, which is the, the, the center of worship, like the, ca- the worship, emperor worship capital of all of Rome. And there's temples everywhere. And then there's libraries in Ephesus. And, and they're, they're competing to see who is the best in Rome at these different things. Um, and so they're actually big fans of the empire. And they're trying to win the love of, of the emperors in the empire. Um, oftentimes when we read the book of Revelation, we assume that it's all about persecution of the Christians. When in fact... Persecution was really going on a lot, but it was not going on in these cities. Um, These churches tended to be a part of the system. They tended to sort of favor Rome. Um, They tended to to be sort of heavy on the the political side and and sort of big fans of, of their empire simply because of the benefits that they received from this empire because they had sort of joined up with this empire. And so what we're reading here is not a book about persecution. It's more of a book about seduction. It's more of a book um, warning the Christians in the first century, do not be seduced by the empire. This is not God's will. The kingdom of heaven is not spread by the sword. It is not spread by violence. It is spread by service. It's not from the top down. It's from the bottom up. Um, the kingdom of God does not work in the same way that the kingdoms of the world work. So this, this letter, a lot of it is, is a call to action hurled at sleeping Christians. It's a book about seduction, not persecution. So um, let's get into the introduction here. And so here we have, to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, um, each letter to each church, it's usually about five or six verses, and each one starts with a different description. Now, if you actually read it, if you have one of those Bibles that has the words of Jesus in red, all of these letters and most of the book of Revelation is in red because it's, it's um, supposed to be read as this is Jesus talking to the people. So um, the message of Jesus comes through John and John is writing sort of from a position of this is Jesus talking here, writing you a letter. Um, and so this is all going to be in red if you read it um, in your Bibles. And, and so... Jesus is talking to this church, and and he starts off, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So this is the introduction. It's a typical introduction. Who's the letter to? Who's the letter from? Well, it's to to the church in Smyrna, and it's from Jesus. And each letter to each church has a different description of Jesus. It never once actually says Jesus. It gives a different description of who Jesus was. For instance, we have the book of Revelation. We have have the the letter to the church in Ephesus. eight verses earlier, and it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds, holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is, um, since Ephesus is the center of pagan worship and the worship of, of the gods in Rome, this is a reference to sort of the, the, the skies and the seven heavenly lights, if you will. Um, it would be, hold on. Oh man, I got way off my notes. This is what I do. 
This is what I do. Um, there would be the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. These are the main gods that they would worship. And so Jesus writes to them. He speaks to them. And he says, uh, this letter is coming from somebody who actually moves throughout the skies. I'm not fixed. Um, I actually I can move things. I can control things. And in fact, I carry these lights. I'm the sustainer of all of it. So it's this claim to deity and power to a people who are worshiping deities who they believe have power. And so we go back to our letter here to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Why would this be important to them? Well, um, in order to understand this, you have to understand the history of the city of Smyrna. Um, Smyrna was actually, here's, so here we go, here's, here's part of ancient Smyrna that's still standing. Um, you have these huge arches and these columns rising up behind it that are hard to see, but um, there's some ruins left of it, and you can, you can explore those still to this day. Um, Smyrna was actually one of the very first Roman cities, and it, at first it was massive. It was a huge, successful, rich city, rich heritage. Um, about 600 B.C., about 600 B.C., um, their neighbors, the Lydians, came in um, and charged in and, and wiped out the city, destroyed it. Um, and it, it laid absolutely destroyed for about 200 years. Uh, is that right? No, 400 years. For 400 years, um, it just laid fallow. Nobody lived there. There was no city. There was no buildings left standing. Um, and so it was this amazing city that died. 400 years later, the year 200 B.C., um, it, people start moving in and rebuilding it, and, it, and it sort of is brought back to not quite its former glory. Now remember, um, identity in the Roman Empire among these cities is a big deal. All seven of these cities are competing to be recognized by the Roman Empire and to be praised for who they are and what they do and what they've accomplished and the part that they play to further the glory of the empire. And this city carries this history and this past um, where they were great and then they fell from grace. And then they were destroyed and they were there for a while and then they came back. And so you read who this letter is from. I'm writing to the church in Smyrna. It's coming from someone who was the first and will be the last who died and rose again. So he starts off sort of likening himself to me. I know what you're going through. I understand um, this identity crisis that you have. You're trying to compete. You worship the empire. You love the empire. I understand um, that you are wrapped up in, uh, in this history that you carry. Um, maybe some of you sort of can relate to this. I know it's written to a church, but we can take these things individually as well. Um, there are, I mean, Watermark, as, as a church, we, we sort of carry this. There was a time when we died. Um, 2006, the whole thing kind of fell apart. It was about 200 people. Um, the pastor lost his faith, deconstructed became an atheist, lost it, just quit. We were lost. And hundreds of people were hurt in the midst of all of this. Um, and so you could, at some point, you, you, you would meet people around town and say, yeah, I go to a church called Watermark. Oh, yeah, I know about that church. And it still exists. People still respond that way. Because we have a history. We have a past. And so Jesus writes to these people who are carrying this. Maybe that's you. You have a past, and, and, and it keeps getting brought up. And we talked a little bit about your past last week and why you shouldn't be dwelling on it, why you shouldn't even be hiding that. Um, and, and Jesus comes and he says, hey, I want to talk to you. I know what you've been through. I've been there myself. 
I died. I came back to life. Now, um, so it's sort of a message to them to wake up and realize that their greatness does not come from sort of the accolades of the empire and that, that none of that is, is necessary to do the things that will impact sort of the world for that time and beyond. We, we think we need to have this perfect story behind us to move forward and, and to do important things, to do good, purpose-filled things. So let's go to the next part. Um, so that's the introduction. And in verse 9, it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, um, there is uh, some, some, some great Greek here. So um, first off, he says, I, I know your tribulation. I know what you've been through. So he says, I've, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I know what you've been through. Um, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So that last part, the last line, poverty, but you are rich, um, it's this. It's patoikea plusios. Everyone say patoikea plusios. Look at you. Great. Great job. Now, um, this is a, a beautiful phrase, and uh, let's open it up a little bit. Patoikea is, is a word that means beggary. Um, it, we translate it as poverty. Actually, um, the word poverty is it's fine, but in, in average language, it refers more to beggary. Um, there's this uh, ancient book um, written in the 4th century called Plutus by a man named Aristophanes. And uh, if, you, if you read into this, into this book, he, he's one of those guys that personifies all the different characters um, that, that we have inside of us, sort of the characteristic, the, the traits that we carry, the, uh, sort of the, the emotional sides of us. He, he turns them all into sort of these characters, these Greek mythological gods and, and minor goddesses and stuff. Um, and, and he writes this, is, is Patoikea not Pena's sister? Pena is actually the word for poverty. Uh, and so he kind of links these things together. Beggary is the sister of poverty. Of course, if you're impoverished, what are you going to do? You're going to ask for help. You're going to beg. Now, this word here, plusios, is where you ever, you ever hear the word um, a plutocracy? It refers to opulence. It refers to riches. Um, so instead of linking the words patoikea and pena together, we have we have a phrase which means the begging rich, those living in opulence who are still begging for more. And so Jesus is speaking to these people, and he says, look, I know what you've been through. I know there's these things that you think you need to have your identity, to find out who you are, to be what you believe you need to be. And I know that you've suffered some pain. He says, I know your tribulation, and I know you're begging but you're rich. You don't realize it. You have no idea the opulence that you are living in, just how rich you are. So essentially, he calls them the begging rich. These are two words that don't usually go well together. Uh, they're never found together um, in ancient writings. Um, so he says, I know your story. I know you were destroyed and you were brought back to life. And, and here's the thing about people who have been really close to death or, or who have had near-death experiences. Uh, they call them NDEs. Um, and if you read about like, the experiences and the life change after people have, have had these near-death experiences, there's, there's some interesting things that happen. First off, they tend to appreciate their loved ones more. They tend to enjoy the simple things in life more. They tend to um, wake up with sort of this joy that, like, here I am another day. I have family members that have been, um, basically died on the operating table and been brought back. And their joy that they find in the everyday small little things is incredible. Um, they're drawn towards things that are pleasant, not angry things. They, have, they tend to have a better appreciation for life. Actually, I, I read that um, they tend to not listen to death metal, which you would think near-death experience, death metal, there's an intersection there, but there's not. Um, 
it tends to, they're just not interested. They want just happy stuff, like that really annoying song. It's always on the radio, the happy song. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and and because, because they almost lost everything, and so even the smallest things they had this appreciation for, but that's not so with these people. They, their city is brought back, and they're so terrified um, ab- about what they went through, and, and they, they carry it with this shame. Now, um, remember, this is written to a church. This letter is not to a city. It's to a church in the city who has apparently bought in to the city. Um, the church is a place where the message of God is proclaimed that life is a gift, that l- the love of, of God is, is grace. It's not earned. It has nothing to do with what you've done or what you've been through. That God is present, that salvation and healing and resurrection were, are, and still can be very real. And so there is this group of people in competition with others to, to, to make a name for themselves in the empire. And then John writes to them, and says, I, I, look, I, I know you're begging, but you're rich. And then he follows it up with this. He says, I also know this, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I'm going to touch on this and move on because I, I have to open this up because people tend to read stuff like this and say, well, that sounds a little offensive. Um, so let me open this up for you. Um, in the first century, there was not this huge difference between Jews and Christians like there is today. We consider these two separate things. Uh, in the first century, um, Christians considered themselves Jewish whose Messiah had come. So there was actually hundreds of, of different sects of Judaism in the day. Christians were just considered another sect of Judaism until really about the rise of Constantinople when we kind of parted ways and, and, and wanted nothing to do with them anymore. But up until that point, uh, they, they were always considered sort of brothers and sisters. And, and so in the first century, so uh, like this audience would consider themselves Jewish, um, followers of Jesus, but Jewish. Now, um, in the first century, they had, would you imagine that they, actually, they had these conversations where people would say, oh, you're not a real Jew because you don't do this. You're not a real Jew because you don't do this. I know you can't imagine Christians ever having this kind of conversation, <laughs> except every day, mainly on Facebook, um, every day. And I have been, I don't know how many times you've been called not a Christian by Christians. I've, I'd be rich if I could count it all. Um, but... Um, this is kind of what people do. Now, so you see kind of some of this, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, um, this is not sort of a slam on, on, on the Jewish church at all. This is actually an elevation of it because what he's saying is, I know people are slandering you. I know they're looking down upon you with this identity thing that you have. I know, I know you are being slandered. Um, if they were truly followers of God, if they truly loved and knew God, they would not be living this way. They would not be slandering you. They would not be acting this way because my people don't do this. And so he calls them not a, not a synagogue of God, but synagogue of Satan, the enemy. And so he says, no, they're on the other side. Um, it's sort of this elevation, like real Jews wouldn't do this. They wouldn't act like this. It's an elevation of, of them, not a, not a degradation. I've heard so many times people describe the Jewish people as a synagogue of Satan, Christians who have just no concept of, of ancient historical context of scriptures and how to read them. And uh, we can easily misuse things very, very, very easily. Um, and this is one of those times where he's actually lifting up the Jewish people. Now, um, so let's, uh, let's keep rolling. Mm. All right. 
He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So verse 9 continues, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So let's open up suffer. Don't worry. I'm going to, at the end, we're going to take all these little pieces and put them together into a perfect line. Okay, ready? Um, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So the word suffer, when we think of suffer, we tend to think of uh, torture, like someone being arrested and, and tied up and, you know, fingernails being pulled off and stuff. Um, that's, that would be a word that would, that would describe sort of external pain and suffering and bloodshed and stuff. That's not this word. Um, the word is, is pasco, and it means internal turmoil. It's an inside sort of a, a battle inside, like pain, emotional pain, loss, um, struggle. Um, And so it's a feeling of emotional sorrow that he says is going to come. And then he says this. He says in verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, again, a lot of this is subject to the translator when they're translating it from the original language. A lot of it is subject, a lot of translation is actually subject to biases that the original translators had. Um, uh, we're, We're using the ESV. Um, and so words are selected that describe sort of exactly what the translator sees. But archaeology tells us that actually in this time period, and for a long time after, um, probably about 80 or 90 years after this, there was no persecution of Christians in Smyrna. There just wasn't. It never happened. Um, Not until really, I believe it was Polycarp, I think was killed in the city of Smyrna. That was hundreds of years later. Um, and so you read this and then you study archaeology and you say, well, why are they talking about persecution coming um, when persecution actually didn't happen here? Well, if you, if you come to the text and you're translating it and you already think persecution is happening there, that's what you're going to write. And so you're going to use words like prison when the word for prison is simply a word that means a place of watching. That's what it means. It could be prison, yes. Um, but it means eyes watching. It means a place where everyone is watching you. Eyes are on you. Now, um, and then it says that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Tribulation, um, it's the word flipsis. Uh, it means anguish. It's also internal. It's not external. And so what we have is a picture. Okay, so hold on. Uh, let me light up the 10 days part here. So 10 days. Um, time periods and, and the writing, the use of, of these writings in time periods, especially in ancient Hebrew, um, and to the Jewish people were very important. If they had written about, if they had wrote like 40 days, you're going to a time of tribulation for 40 days. Um, 40 would refer to a time of sort of cleansing, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days of the earth being flooded and being cleansed, um, 40 measures in the mikvah that people, the baptism that people go through, the ritual cleansing, um, 40 days of Jesus praying, 40 days of, of Isaiah in the wilderness before. And every single time, a new thing starts. If it was 70, it would, be, it would, it would basically mean infinity, a massive number, like 70 times 7. How many times should I forgive people? 70 times 7. And so you see these, these numbers referring to different things in scriptures. Um, and it's just symbolism. It's, it's ancient literary devices. 10 is the exact measure of uh, 10 days was the exact measure of a, a, a legal trial in the first century. It's a short time. It refers to a short period of time. So is it literally 10 days? No, like very, very little in the book of Revelation is literal. It's all just metaphorical. It's, it's all picturesque. And so 10 refers to a small period of time. So let's, let's put this all together. I know we've been all over the board. So let's summarize this. The city of Smyrna has this really rough past. Really rough past. And they sort of have an identity crisis. And people are criticizing them 
and slandering them and watching them. All eyes are on them because they don't measure up. And there's other cities and other churches taking part in this. And they have this distorted view of wealth, this distorted view of of what we need in life, what we should be chasing after, what we really want. And he calls them begging rich. He says, you're like people with a bank account with millions of dollars in it sitting on the street corner begging for money. This is Smyrna. And this is exactly what Jesus writes to them. He says, here's my message for you. Here's some things you don't see about yourself. You're too wrapped up in your past. You have everything you need and you want more. You don't need anything else. You literally have everything that you need. You are rich. You are living in opulence. You have love. You have each other. You have everything. I can't help when I read this, when I read about this church, but see American Christianity in in the letters to most of these churches. This is what I see. I see American Christianity. Um, and, And that is why I want to study them. And that's why when we're done, I think we should study them again and again and again. Um, because these letters could easily have just had the names changed on them and, and could easily be sent to churches all over the country, to the church in the south, to the church in the north, to the church in the Pacific Northwest, to the church on the east coast, to the church in the southern California area, like the church in the Midwest. Like We have issues. And I, I think it's, we're coming to a place where we're all sort of collectively admitting we are starting to look a lot like the churches in Rome that, that, that John wrote to, his message of Jesus to. We have some things that need to be rebuked, absolutely rebuked. Um, when I, I see the letter to Smyrna and I see our culture today of, I'm just going to say, mega churches and celebrity pastors. This is where we are. Um, we, for some reason, think that we need to compete with each other as if we're not all one global church, as if we're not local expressions of one global church. That's how the Nicene Creed puts it. One Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic is a word that means universal. The universal church. All those who follow Jesus and believe that his life poured out for the sins of the world is the path to salvation and healing for all. All those who would line up and take communion as Christians And yet, we feel we are in this competition with each other. And yet, we feel, um, you know, American evangelicals really are the begging rich. Our perceived identity, our perceived identity um, that we want and that we desire as churches tends to be success, power, might, growth, numbers, buildings, bank accounts, programs. Our actual identity, however, according to scriptures, our actual identity is disciples of a homeless rabbi who sets the table for the poor and is killed by the rich. That's our actual identity. That's who we actually are. Followers of a first century Jewish rabbi who set the table for the poor and was killed by the rich and powerful. Set the table for those who had no influence and no power and was killed by those who did. And Jesus the whole time is saying, that's actually not wealth. What we have What we need in this world, everything that we have is found in the church. Everything you need is found in the body of Christ. Everything. What we need is found in the bride when we come together. 
And so American evangelicals really are the begging rich. How many times must we put our leaders on these pedestals and raise them up higher and higher and higher and higher so the only place that they can go is, is down, is fall? In the last year, six, I want to say six megachurch pastors have either fallen or quit because of the pressures of what they're under. And here's the thing. We are all in this together. Growth is not the point. Power is not the point. Influence is actually not ours to claim at all. Influence is the Lord's. In pursuing these things, it it sends us into the anguish that he's talking about. It takes us, it takes from the church all of the things that give her purpose and hope. And so, what do we do about this? What is the message that is for us? How do we stop buying in to the worldly view of success, numbers and power and growth, identity in physical stuff. How do we change this? Well, it's the last thing that Jesus tells them. So he points out, this is who you are. You don't understand. You don't realize. You're not self-aware. You don't have the right identity. If you could see yourself the way I see you, and he lays it all out for him, And then he says this. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, in the first century, in the mind of the first century, hearing this, you would hear some incredible things. Um, Be faithful unto death. So, you're going to be faithful to the things of the gospel, first off. Even if it kills you. This is what you're going to do. Um, And I will give you the crown of life. And I know people read this and say, aha, see? So there is a way to the crown and to power because people with crowns on, they rule, right? So there is a way to power. And that's God's goal for us is to rule. No. If it was crown, um, if it was that kind of crown, the Greek word that is used would be the word diadema, which um, if you ever heard the old hymn, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Um, if you haven't, it means you didn't grow up in the church. But if you did, and you've sang this a million times, and you're like, I don't know what a diadem is. It's, it's a crown um, like you would picture a king wearing. It's made of precious metals, which do not deteriorate, and precious stones, which last a really, really, really long time. The closest thing to sort of an eternal thing that we would used to make, and it's what goes on the head of a king. That's not the word that is used here. That's a symbol of power. It's the symbol of it doesn't diminish, it doesn't rust It's going to last forever because the power of the king is going to last. Um, The word that is actually used here is the word Stephanos. Um, A Stephanos is, okay, so this is an ancient Roman coin, Caesar coin. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about this word before because Paul uses it regularly when he refers to the crown and to Christian power. This is what it should look like. It's a fig leaf sort of wreath that goes around the head. it, It is worn by people who are victorious in battle, it is worn by people who win uh, the Roman games or the Domitian games or people who train really hard in the gymnasium and they go and they win a race or they climb a pole or whatever you do and they win a medal. Um, nowadays we give people medals. In this day they give you sort of this wreath. It is the opposite of the diadema. The diadema is made to last forever. Now here's the interesting part. Um, so the emperor would wear one and his governors in different cities would wear them and... They would sort of wear them when they were traveling. The emperor would allow the governors to wear them, and they would wear them in these parades, these triumphal processions that moved through the city. And the people would cheer, and they would, they would just cheer for these, for these governors as they went through the cities. Now, the emperor 
would hire a slave to ride in the chariot with the governor, the one who's wearing the crown, made to last forever. And every time sort of the people start cheering, it was the slave's job to lean over and whisper in the ear of the governor and say, all glory is fleeting. All glory is fleeting. I think we should have this at like the Emmys. (laughs) People start cheering for you. You're holding up your trophy. Somebody walks out, hey, all glory is fleeting. You watch two years from now, nobody's going to know who you are. This is how it works. All glory is fleeting. And so the crown is made to last forever. But the thing is, all the Roman emperors usually ended up being killed by someone very close to them. Run through with a dagger or a sword or, or being beheaded or thrown out a window. That's actually called defenestration. Did you know that? When you, there's a word for throwing somebody out a window. Defenestration. Um, and so this crown is supposed to like give you the glory, but it that doesn't, doesn't last long at all. And so there's this other crown that you earn, the Stephanos. It's, it's a, sort of a, a different kind of crown of glory that um, you win the race or you conquer in battle and you wear this thing and within 24 hours, 48 hours, it's deteriorated, it's done, it's gone. But you carry this the rest of your life. People know what you did. People understand what you sacrificed and how hard you worked and how dangerous it was and what you accomplished. And so, Jesus speaks to this church, and, and, and he basically says, look, you want this earthly glory. You want people to look at you and, and praise your power and your might like a king and a crown. He says, but if you are faithful, I mean, that, that's going to fade. That's all going to fade. Celebrities fall. Large organizations, they collapse all the time. People who are faithful, though, faithful people, who are faithful to other people, faithful to God, these people, while the things that they earn don't really appear worth much on this earth, people remember you. That glory lasts. You will receive the crown of life. This is the symbol of the church. This is how it works. This is not about buildings and prestige and power and programs and book deals and podcasts and just, ugh, American colossal fame. We are a local expression of Christians who are not in competition with any other church but are coming alongside of them to further the kingdom together. They have things we don't have. We have things they don't have. We work together and we share. We should not be begging rich. We should be the generous rich. That's who we should be. People who understand that what matters in life is not the diadem, is the Stephanos. And so we picture sort of an Olympic medal that you earn from working real hard. We're loving each other, we're serving each other, and now we wear each other like an Olympic medal around our necks. And so people ask about your church, and you don't talk about your building or your programs or your past or any of that. You say... Those are some of the most loving, wonderful people. When I went through this, they were there for me. They served. They work hard for each other. They are there. They work hard for their city. They love their city. And they sacrifice for each other, for the people, for their city. That's what a church is. And I think the letter to Smyrna could easily be read the letter to the church in America. And I think God wants us to kind of cut it out. I really do, to humble ourselves.
to find ourselves in each other and in God and to serve each other and to wear each other like a crown. And so the symbol of this is perfectly described in communion when Jesus lays down his life instead of picking up the scepter and charging in to politics he charges into the poorhouse and is arrested and murdered unjustly for you and for me and then he rises up and he says now follow me let's do this and so we're going to take communion if you're a communion server feel free to grab uh, the elements and spread around the room um Communion is a time when we center ourselves on the fact that life is found only because someone sacrificed for us. Jesus sacrificed for us. That our hope for the world comes from us following Jesus in a sacrificial lifestyle. Not through riches, not through power, not through all these earthly things. And so uh, we're going to take some time and we're going to pray. And our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and spread around the room. And uh, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to take communion with us. Come on up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, and eat it. Um, it's symbolic of, of the gospel coming down inside us, feeding us. What we bring to the table, the communion table, is all of our pain, all of our fears, all of our hopelessness, or all of our successes and our pride and our ways that we've been so moral. And we leave them all at the table. And what we receive is the body and the blood of Christ broken and spilled out for you and for me. And we take it. And we trade these things. This is the currency of the kingdom. And so let's take some time and let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. Be with us during this time of communion. Bless us, change us, make us whole again.